This podcast is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. DailyDrip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if that hard part was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elixir? Elm? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday, you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes five minutes a day. Make learning part of your daily routine with dailydrip.com. I have the fanciest chair, though, now. Oh, yeah. That looks nice. Is it? It is, yeah. It's the official, not the, the official chair of Twitch streamers, but, like, everybody who streams on, uh, on Twitch has, has, like, this exact chair. Oh. How did that come to be? Um... I got drunk and sent a link to it to my wife and said, I'll just leave this here. And then a week later, a chair was at my house. Oh. And I have no clue how that occurred. Oh, that's cute. How's things going for you, Lila? Good, good. Um, I am enjoying Elixir, a little side project. and Nice. Having fun. So it's yeah. good because we're an Elixir consultancy now. So, yeah, so I hear. <laughs> so I hear. I'm just adjusting to the new paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm having a good time. I definitely don't know how to write good Elixir. Like, my Elixir looks like bad Ruby. So, yeah, yeah. I went uh, like for me getting over the idea of like hanging methods and like looking for the right place for a method to go and then realizing it doesn't really matter because it's just a function and it can go, right. it can go anywhere. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, and then like the one thing I can do, I'm like, okay, I'll use pattern matching here. I'm just <laughs> doing pattern matching everywhere. Right. It's like the one thing I know how to do. So, right. um, but yeah, it's fun. That's that's what's new with non-client work. Client work is good. Same project uh, with the uh, SQL Server data migration stuff we talked about a few months ago. Yeah. How's that going? It's good. Um, good. So we did. So the follow up to that is we did decide to migrate to Postgres because we found that if we were to stick with SQL Server, we would have to upgrade to SQL Server 2012 anyway from 2008, which is what they're on. So that was an unknown. Yeah, expensive and unknown amount of work with an unknown tool set. So given that migrating to Postgres seemed less risky. Cool. Yeah. So. Nothing too exciting to report there. I'll let you know when there is something too exciting, something exciting <laughs> to report. Well, I guess the exciting thing is we do have a data migration pipeline that works, which is awesome, but it's quite slow. <laughs> so I have to figure out how to speed it up. Okay. I just yeah. want to state for the record, mm-hmm. Rails 5 is coming out tomorrow. <laughs> I was off by one day. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's... Sean, it's been like a running thing where on several shows, Sean will be like, this will be out by the time the listeners hear this. And then like uh-huh. the episode comes and goes. Uh, yeah. This episode will probably not release for two weeks. So, right. um, I, so think, I think be you'll out. be I think you'll be good, <laughs> but it'll be funny if it's not. No, yeah. just Twitter. Twitter, <laughs> Twitter was 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 making fun of me. I saw <laughs> that. I saw that. It's OK. <laughs> Managing expectations is hard. Yeah. So speaking of rails. Airplanes. Um, airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> those are not on rails usually. Those, those, <laughs> those fly through the air. They're sort so of the Sean and I, and we were at RailsConf um, the night before the first night at like the speaker dinner, I met Nick. What's his last name? Nicholas Means. Means. I met Nicholas at the speaker dinner, and I was like, oh, what's your talk about? And he's like, oh, I'm actually giving the keynote tomorrow. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, 
know, what are you going to be talking about? He's like, uh, Lockheed Martin Skunkworks and what we can learn from it. And I was like, all right, well, you know, it's, it's a keynote sounding thing, but I'm not quite sure where you're going with this. And it ended up being my favorite talk of the conference. So I made you watch it, and I've made several other people watch it. <laughs> um, a good talk. There are a lot of things I liked about it, and it was surprisingly, like, I found myself... You know, like he doesn't at the very end, he kind of like ties it a little bit back to software, but he mostly leaves that up to an exercise for you. Like uh, we'll put a link to the show notes, uh, link to the talk in the show notes. If you haven't seen it, you should probably go see it before you listen to this. I don't know. It's nothing we're going to spoil, but it's just a really good talk. So you should definitely go <laughs> watch it. Um, but what did you think, Sean, watching it? So, you know, I liked that he didn't try to force tying it into software like more than was necessary. I mean, there was definitely the, the, the clear parallels drawn and the clear, like, here's how we can use the lessons from this to improve our craft. But I also like that he kind of just embraced giving a really interesting talk about airplanes. Right. That was the other thing that really appealed appealed to me is, like, I'm not an airplane nerd like he was or he is, uh, but it was still, like, I, it's up my alley, right? Like, <laughs> so I was just interested in hearing these stories. When you describe things as just, and it's a giant hack, that, that helps. Right, yeah, he would describe these planes like he talked about the making of the U-2 spy plane. And the thing goes, you know, 70,000 feet in the air. They built it in eight months and nothing had ever flown that high before. And he talks about the way that <laughs> they land the plane, which is basically like they bring it down close enough to the ground and then they put it down on two wheels that are in line with each other. And it slows down enough and then tips over on a wing. And then like, you're like, what? Like they have all this technology, get this plane up to 70,000 feet and take pictures over places, like hopefully be out of range of radar of all these things. They have like this really advanced camera on board and the best they can do for landing the plane is making it so that it tips over on a wing and then they have to like, people come out and like they have to jump up to the other wing and pull it down so they can finish pushing it to where it needs to go and like, he had the, he had a video of it of it um, from a chase car, and the reason why the chase car has to be there is because the pilot can't see, and he has to explain like how close you are to the run to the runway, and like just the whole thing is like a giant hack. But in the end, like the point of the whole talk is like they picked what was important to them. They picked that flying high and delivering this camera where it needed to go was important, and everything else was not. And so they took shortcuts everywhere else in order to maximize for the chief goal of the project basically and that's the part that just kept ringing through to me ringing true to me over and over again throughout the talk yeah i i really enjoyed it i enjoyed watching it and one of the things that i thought listening to it i think as a software developer i was like wow these requirements are so clear it needs to go this high for this long, fly over this airspace, not get caught. I mean, obviously those are very complex requirements, but they're also very clear, hard constraints for which you can optimize. And um, I feel like sometimes in my day-to-day -day work, that kind of clarity is lacking. And I think he alluded to it a little bit, but he mentioned that like Kelly Johnson was the name of the guy who ran the Skunk Works program and got some of these planes built. And part of the reason why it was so effective is they were able to divorce themselves from the like the overhead of how Lockheed Martin tra traditionally works, like the bureaucracy of it. And I think when the bureaucracy gets involved, like if you end up, you don't end up with a plane, we need a plane that can fly 70,000 feet with this camera, right? You end up with, what's, is it the F-35, the thing that they're building now? Look, I said I wasn't a plane nerd, but now I'm proving it because I don't know the name of it. Um, I definitely don't know. 
<laughs> yes. So the Lockheed Martin F-35 is a uh, also the joint, I think it's called the Joint Strike Fighter, but basically it's a fighter plane that like all of the branches of the military and Lockheed Martin were designing together. And they were like, it needs to be able to take off vertically and it needs to be able to do this. It needs to be able to, so like they wanted one fighter for all these things and like just basically designed by a committee and it's been delays after delays after delays, billions of dollars of overrun. We can link to some of the fallout from that, but um so like that's the corollary, right? It's like That's really interesting. So one can extrapolate that I, I guess I had been assuming that Skunk Works was kind of handed these requirements, said like, you know, it needs to go this high, this fast, this far. But it must have been a collaborative process. If this is what's happening with the F thirty five, then to get these super, well, comparatively clear and well-defined requirements must have been the result of Skunk Works collaborating with the people contracting them. It might have also just been that there was a clear, like, like we need this plane to fly over Russia and we need it. We, yeah. need, it, we need it yesterday. Yeah. Right. Not like we need this airplane to replace all of the airplanes we currently have in our system and it needs to be able to do everything <laughs> all these other airplanes could do. Right. It was like, we have a clear need. We needed, we needed this last week. Um, invent this. Yeah. And actually that, that reminds me. So the origin story of, of Skunk Works is exactly that, right? It's like they had an engine from, so this was during World War II. There was a super powerful engine called something crazy like the Green Goblin or something from the British Armed Forces. And they needed a plane that could use the engine. And that was, that was it, right? That's, that's where that, where Skunk Works came from. I believe so. <laughs> Lots of good stories in there that I keep mixing up, but yeah. On the requirements thing too, like oftentimes it, it does also take work to get the clear requirements, right? That's why I thought about you guys always do the product design sprints. That's that's an exercise that very, very well helps draw out what the specific requirements of the product are or what the goal you're trying to accomplish is. And I think there's also a, a middle ground of like being given clear specific requirements versus being told like, hey, I, we need a plane that can do everything and replace everything we have. And, I, you know, there there is a lot of wiggle room to sort of nudge any project in one direction or the other. Right. Like a lot of times they're just asking, so what actually are your priorities? Right. And like during the process of working together, like they mentioned that they, they got rid of the process of like Lockheed's normal, like formal drawing approval because they wanted to just quickly get to like working with the metal, basically. And being like, can this thing fly? Like, what is it? Like, who cares what it looks like? Like, basically, can this thing fly? Can it do the job? Um, and that, like, kind of rang true to me for corollaries to, like, getting rid of the big upfront design, kind of, kind of like, waterfall-y, like, here's our RFP where, in which we define all of the requirements for the project, and can you, can you build us this? Yeah, I just heard the metal and assumed he was saying, right, everything in C all the time. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, those were just like, it just kept, every time I heard it, it was just like, there were different parts of it, I think, that stood out to me about software for different reasons, but I don't know, I've been talking a lot, so somebody else, what kind of things did it evoke from you as a corollary to software and like other questions or things where you thought maybe it didn't, it fell flat a little bit or? I think that it was, it's always useful to compare processes for developing physical products in the real world and software and see what the similarities are, but also where the comparison starts to break down. And one question I had with the talk is similar to, this very much related to specifying the requirements for the thing that needs to get built is how you know you've achieved success. And 
with a plane, you know, if it flies. If it flies and... 70,000 feet in the air and it doesn't crash. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah. For X, you know, hours or minutes or whatever, then it, it's clearly a success. Even if it doesn't land very elegantly, right? But with software, especially, well, this is a separate point, which I'll get to, but for software, especially in an organization or in a company that's still trying to figure out its product market fit, evaluating the success of what you've built is, I don't want to say harder because I certainly can't compare like building an e-commerce website to building a plane. So it's not harder, but the metrics for success aren't as clear to me and perhaps not as clear to all stakeholders. I mean, it's also at the end of the day, like, right, these planes had a very specific mission that they had to fulfill, and that was a success metric. And yeah. software does ultimately always have a specific mission to fulfill, which is generally like giving the company continued life. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it is like, it makes sense. But also, like, I think we took a very during the talk, we took kind of a narrow view necessarily of what success for these planes meant, right? They accomplished the technical feat of making a plane fly at 70,000 feet and take pictures over Russia. But the idea of the plane was that they were going to be able to fly at 70,000 feet and be undetected by Russian military because they would be out of the range of radar. And it turned out that was wrong, right? They built something that worked, but not in the way they thought it was going to work, right? It worked because Russia had nothing that could fly that high. But they were <laughs> like, we only have, I forget what it was, but they were like, we have, you know, I don't know, two years or something like that, that we can actually fly this plane without risk of Russians shooting us down. So now we've got to get to work on the next thing. Well, and then that's the other way it breaks down, right? Is that then in software, when you're in that situation, you replace the wings on the plane while it's still flying, and then it goes to 80,000 <laughs> feet <laughs> Right. Like, that's the other thing. We're not, you know, when you're not building a physical product, you can also just change it, at, especially in web uh, development, you can just change it at any point. Right. I mean, I've certainly built a lot of projects that, like, met the technical requirements and been like, this, this meets the requirements. I'm really proud of the work that we did here. I'm proud of the way we did the work, but nobody's using this. Or right. like, <laughs> right. it just wasn't something the market needed, right? Or, or something yeah. like that. So like, even if the technical requirements are very simple and very clear, meeting them isn't always uh, project success. And in the case of the U2, I think you would say it was a success, but it wasn't, uh, and, and you know, those are still flown today. So it's it's not terrible, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as slam, as slam dunk of a success as they had hoped. Right. And it could also just like if you want to pull the metaphor, it could be like they build the plane and it meets all of the requirements. But given the cost, it actually turns out that it's just they're better off doing whatever the riskier thing was with the planes they already had because it didn't actually give the benefit requ like required for the cost of developing it or building. it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another piece in hardware that's kind of different is like you have to make your hardware economical to commercialize and you have to be able to bring it to market. And bringing software to market, there's so much less overhead than than hardware projects. Right. Especially if you're building an e-commerce site. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point of like success is kind of a long-term game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another thought I had was um, about process. Going back to the topic of process, and it it seems very clear that Skunkworks' success was largely due to the way they were able to pare back the process, all, all the different processes 
around product development and, and reduce the layers of bureaucracy. But one question that's always interesting to me is who is empowered and who has the authority to make those process decisions? Where do those come from? And yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of an open question. What do you guys think? I mean, wasn't that a thing with Skunk Works? Was that, I don't remember the guy's name, Derek. Kelly Johnson? Yeah. Like he sort of was the ultimate product owner on everything that went through there. And that probably makes a huge difference because it's not designed by committee. Yeah, that's a great point. He, I think product owner is a good way to think of his role. Yeah. Um, and he has like these, we, we can link to it, but he hasn't, he has like the 14 rules for Skunk Works or whatever. And a lot of them are actually like you could read along and be like, yeah, we actually we had um, after this talk, Caleb also really liked this talk. And he one of our coworkers, Caleb Thompson, and he was like, I'm going to write a blog post about these rules. And it turned out like, like Matt Jankowski had written the blog post already back in <laughs> like 2008 or 2009 or something. like That's that. That's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, ideas that keep coming up again. Uh, but yeah, he did have like he insisted on basically like, yeah, if we're going to do this, this is how, how we're going to run it. I'm going to have autonomy and I'm going to like we're going to get rid of uh, a lot of the formality and we're going to iterate and we're not going to do mock-ups like the actual plane is going to be our mock-up and we're going to play with it. And, you know, we do that in software a lot of times. Like we don't do a lot of like balsamic mock-ups or, you know, whatever people like PDFs and things like that. Um, in design sprints, we might in order to get something that we can test. But once we get beyond that phase, we're not like mocking up the entire website. I mean, you have color comps still. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to speak for the designers in their workflow and their part of the workflow. But typically, like I when I look at a project, if I come into a project and it already has 35 pages of uh, here's what this screen is going to look like and do. And then here's what this screen is going to look like and do. It just it, for one, it's not very inspiring because it's like uh, there's not a lot of room here. You're not leaving me a lot of room to innovate. And two, it's kind of signals that like you're not willing to you you are perhaps not willing to reconsider along the way. Maybe you are, but the message you're sending is like I've already thought about all of these problems that we're going to see along the way. And in reality, like the product that we're going to build, if we're doing our jobs right, the product you end up with after three months is going to have different features than the features you thought the product was going to have on day one. Um, it may have more features, less features, probably fewer or different features. Because we're going to combine things, or we're going to say things are unnecessary, or we're going to make features that were small, like we're going to test and we're going to find that things we thought were small deals are actually big deals, and maybe the product can be centered around those again, that kind of thing. The other thing I really liked, like Sean, you had mentioned earlier, you were talking about how like a couple times during the talk, he would just like stop and look at the slide and see the picture of the thing and just be like, that was a complete hack, right? And um, and it was funny and cool. And like, I just kept thinking, I wish people would let me do that more. <laughs> like, yep. Definitely. Like, we will have projects where it's like the client wants X, Y, and Z, which is like an ancillary feature to the thing. And I'm like, well, can we do it that? What if we just did like this kind of crazy thing? It doesn't matter. Or like, I'm kind of famous in the Boston office for saying like, can we just replace whatever you just said with like a link? And when you click on it, it's like, call this phone number. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we do it and I like, like it. goes to somebody who can like open up a console and do what you need done. Like, do we need to? <laughs> and then everybody's like, that won't scale. Right. And it's like, well, okay, when it doesn't scale, we'll fix it. But like right now we'll come around, you know, we'll get to it. But when it right now it's, you know, scale is not our problem. Like getting out the door is our problem. So I, always, I do wish that people would just like have more of a laser focus. And by people, I think I mean, mostly product owners would have like, a laser focus on where it's okay to just not have something pretty or something 
even good, right? Like something that's yeah. just like passable. It's going to get the job done. Yeah. Um, and it's hard because everybody wants like something that's fully polished and looks great. Like you don't, you don't want to buy a house and have one room be a total disaster. But at the same time, like you can get to that other room and fix it up later when you need to. I don't know. <laughs> Making construction and home buying metaphors again. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the, one that, the one that really stood out to me was, um, I don't remember the name of the plane, but the, the, the stealth fighter. Right. I, I don't remember the name. SR-71. Is that yeah. stealth? It is stealth, but yeah. Anyway. I'm talking about the triangular one. Is yep. that, I, that's I don't know. Yeah, that. that's, yeah. That's, yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, anyway, right. And its whole thing is that it is not even remotely close to aerodynamically stable and like nothing about that shape should be able to fly. And they basically compensated for it by sticking really powerful engines on it and a lot of control surfaces. Right. And so it just it, it wobbles like hell when you fly it and it, it's quirky as shit, but it did the thing that nobody else kind of thought was possible at the time. And ju that just reminds me in general that it, that description reminds me of rails. <laughs> <laughs> i did really like that story too like just the idea of like they read this paper which had been out for a while and we're like hmm, maybe we can calculate how radar reacts to different surfaces and like may what if we made a plane that looked like this and, and they were like uh okay fine and so like they they made a like a model of it and they were like yeah it doesn't show up on radar but look at that thing it's not gonna fly <laughs> like <laughs> there's no way you can make that thing fly and they're right. Like, it is frankly closer to a rocket than a plane, like in terms of how it flies. <laughs> I actually I'm looking through my notes here and I made a t I made a note about that same thing. I said, like, stealth, it doesn't look like it should fly. It makes no sense. <laughs> it makes no sense to people familiar with traditional flight. And I wrote, is that an A-B test corollary? Right. Like <laughs> a lot of times you'll do an A-B test and be surprised by the result and be like, really? And just be like, well, I guess I'll trust. I guess I'll trust this. Right. Like this right. made su these, this made that that big of a difference. Right. And a lot of times, like, people familiar with how things are supposed to work or supposed to look are just, like, offended by the result of an A-B test. And it's like, well, we we actually tested this. And, you know, you could you could quibble over the statistical validity of, of many of these A-B test results. But but I, I thought that that was kind of a corollary there. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you remember if the speaker talked at all about the relationship, if there was any relationship between the designers and the engineers and the people actually flying the planes. I don't recall him mentioning the pilots at all. No, he talked yeah. about, he talked about like whether pilots liked flying things or like mm -hmm. using and like when they had to do tests, like the they had to do tests, like way out in the middle of the desert with plenty of places to crash the planes, but no, right. like that would have been in an interesting, like, you know, they got this bit of feedback from the, you know, the actual pilot who was like, what if you just did this and it solved all of our problems. Right. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I would have liked to hear more about is the like what the feedback loop between the the pilots and the the engineers looked like. That probably changed massively over the the lifetime of, yeah. of that. Uh, or Skunk Works is still around, right? Yeah, I think so. Sure. I think they have a website, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I would also assume that like there's probably more of feedback loop now than there was in the World War II era. Maybe, maybe not though. Maybe back in World War II, they were like, we need to get this fully operational, commercialized, deployed as quickly as possible. So we need pilots yeah. providing input early as early as possible. That's true. That, that is true. I guess I'm, I'm just trying to compare it to like how the X-Plane program worked, where it was literally like engineers put out a thing and then pilots died. 
<laughs> right, <laughs> right. Which is not good. That's not what we want. No, but I mean, that was how it worked there. But you're right. It actually would make a ton of sense for Skunk Works to have like literally just said. Yeah. Skunk. Well, I mean, but also, I, I mean, this is a very morbid thought, but I also wonder like what kind of tolerance for each of these projects is there around failure rates and fatality and, you know, how successful... But now that I'm saying that, I realize that a lot of money is being spent on these planes, so they probably don't want them to crash. So <laughs> they probably cared a lot about that, actually. <laughs> in this in this in this instance, pilot death is also aligned with economics. So <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. I think the people involved clearly would have been upset had people died. So I think that's you know. Yeah, but I mean, test pilots did enough. and do die, and like, yep. Yep. you don't sign up as a test pilot without the understanding that one in four test pilots do not survive. Is oh, that really? true? It's one in four. Uh, I, I doubt that is true anymore, but that was true from like the 50s to the 80s. Wow, that's fascinating. I did not realize it was that high. That's crazy. Hmm. Yeah, and Lila, you were talking earlier, uh, this reminded me, you were talking about like, how do you decide how much process is the right amount of process and who makes that decision? And at the end, like uh, the bit of wrap up he did do talked about something that Sarah May had either tweeted or written at some point, basically saying that a lot of the problems in software or in development are basically from teams er like adopting processes that are suited to a larger team before their team is that size and ready for such a thing. Right. Right. And that's uh, that's another problem. I, you know, Sarah's often hitting the problems I often see. And that is a problem I often see. Like She's actually got a really good talk on that subject, too, that I'd recommend checking out if you haven't seen it already. Um, she gave it at RubyConf India, and I know she's given it in other places, but I don't know specifically where. But it's, it's about, like, how people often compare software to either the factory model or the kind of blacksmith artisan model. Um, mm -hmm. And instead, maybe, like, the right metaphor for us is more of... Um, uh, actors in a play, hmm. and the and the and the product and that sort of production model. That's cool. Yeah, I remember seeing some tweets on that topic from her, but I didn't know there was a talk. I'll check it out. Yeah, we'll put and a link it, in the show notes. Definitely recorded and online. So yeah, link in the show notes. Yeah, and so I think that like the Skunk Works program was a was a reaction to that sort of like we're not going to go through the usual bureaucracy of Lockheed Martin. We're going to have this group over here that they're going to like have as much process as they need and no more. And how you decide that, I don't know. But I, I've seen that same thing work at larger companies as well. Like when you go into a large, like a lot of times the larger companies that ThoughtBot work with, the larger company itself is viewing the ThoughtBot led project as like a skunk works as like, we need a, like an injection of innovation, I feel like is what the CEO would say at that large company, right? And it's kind of like, let's see if this works. And if this works, maybe we could have a couple other teams work like this. Um, but then ultimately what ends up happening is like, you're like, well, now we have uh, 15 teams that are working like this and I need to know how all of them are doing. Uh, let's install Jira. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how else, do you, how else do you achieve synergy other than injecting innovation? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, you know, a good way to spin up a little innovation factory, you know. <laughs> Nice. I had a, a friend of mine who started a new job recently. This is just tangentially related, but um, you know how there's this sort of there there's like actual spirit of agile, and then there's Scrum Master certified agile. <laughs> yeah. um, and he was just describing to me about how he went into his biweekly uh, sprint retro. I'm just like, so is are, is this one of these companies where you are continuously sprinting? Because that's not how sprints are meant to work. 
<laughs> and then and then I immediately asked, so do you guys use and they just replied, Yes, we use Jira. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how In that agile, tells so you don't. Yeah. Yeah, it tells you a lot <laughs> about how processes are structured, which project management tool is being used. Right. I've certainly, I don't want to badger Jira too much. I've certainly used it on projects that were just fine. I, I almost always don't like actually using it. So sorry, Atlassian. But it is not like a death knell, but it is a smell. No, <laughs> no I mean, it's fine. It's just, it's just, I don't know. I, I love the ad, like it's got agile mode agile mode right to me. because like that's the thing that makes it agile is when you're is when you have a trello like ui for for stories <laughs> that that is that's the difference between agile and that it's funny i think um on the topic of process i i think there has to be someone who is empowered to make decisions about process and who has the authority to do so and we kind of obliquely got at that when we were talking about Kelly Johnson's role as the product owner. But I think that if there's a situation where the process for determining process is unstructured or undefined, then uh, it's it's not going to go very well. Yeah. I've seen that too before where like, or I will come into a, do like staff augmentation on a project kind of thing. And I'll be like, what if instead of doing the way you guys do things today, we do them this slightly different way or maybe this drastically different way that I think is going to work better having heard all of your concerns, right? And they'll be like, well, that sounds really great, but we can't just do that. I'll be like, okay, well, why? Why can't you just do that? And a lot of times the answer is, I don't know, right? It's like, I'm like, yeah. well, who can decide to do that? And it's like, uh, and if the answer is, I don't know, I'm always just like, okay, we're doing it. Like yeah. somebody will tell us we can't if we can't, right? Like, like yeah. we're just going to work this way. Like we had, we had a past client who was like, they had all decided as a company that they wanted to work uh, using the Kanban style, which is like, you know, just like a column of cards ranked by priority. You take the top one or whatever one you can actually act on, take the top one basically and start working on it and stop doing like bucketing things into sprints and that kind of thing. And that's how they all wanted to work. And I was like, cool, that sounds good. And then they talked about how they were going to make this transition for like, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks, a month. Like it just kept carrying on and on. And I kept being like, when is this like switching to Kanban happening? And they were like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so. And then finally, like, basically it turned out like while the biggest person who was like dragging it out was on vacation, I was like, let's just do it now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and everybody was like begrudgingly like, okay. And yeah. then we did it. And that person came back and was like pissed for a day. And then we all were like, it was like, whatever. Like we've, now we have done it. We can stop preparing to do it. And we can just live in a world where we have, <laughs> where we have done it. Yeah, um, it, it was like releasing Rails 5. <laughs> right, sure. Nice. Um, but yeah, like I think a lot of times the answer is like whoever wants to change the process can change the process. Right. Um, and I kind of like that, but I can also see how that appeals to people like me that aren't afraid of just being like, I'm just going to do this. And if somebody has a problem, like the whole, um, you know, beg forgiveness rather than ask permission. Right. Um, yeah. And there are certain I... people who just that doesn't, they're never going to do that. They need to know what the process is for changing the process yeah and i think that as consultants we're outsiders and we have that latitude Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that uh insiders often don't for political reasons you know there might be a culture of fear around change and yeah so yeah you consultants are the worst (laughs) i know i mean it is and it's it's grounded in like like uh, we'll have that same conversation with people and they'll be like i'll be spending time refactoring before i implement a feature 
and I'll talk to some developers on the team and they'll be like, oh man, how do you convince like your manager that you need, you should get time to do this refactoring? I'm like, I, I don't, this is just how I do my job and I don't ask for permission to do it. I just do it. Yeah. You, and I'm like, you should do that too. But at the same time, I recognize that like, if the client ends up not liking the fact that I'm taking time to do some refactoring to make what I think is a better change and make the change easier, if they don't like that, they're not going to work with ThoughtBot anymore and I'm going to go work on a different project for ThoughtBot. Like, I don't have to worry about, like, a lapse in my healthcare coverage. And, yeah, like, that's <laughs> not, you're not actually worried that they're, that you're going to lose a client over that. I'm not worried that I'm going to lose a client over it, but I can see a, inter what I'm, the, the larger point was I can see that, and I have been in the position where you're working internally for a company and you're just consumed by, like, well, I don't want to be the squeaky wheel. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to like when it comes time for layoffs, it's the squeaky wheels that get the you know what I mean? Like you don't want to be you have to pick <laughs> get so yeah. dark. like you have to pick and choose. <laughs> you have to pick and choose between like what the things you're going to complain about are rather than being like a consultant who is basically hired because there's some sort of problem. And it's yeah. like our job is to come in and identify those things um, and try and help fix them and just just start fixing them. Basically, like this is what we were hired to do. And this is the best way we think we know how. Anyway, yeah. um, but how have you seen, Lila, since you asked the question, like how have you seen this, the, the process to change the process? Like how have you seen that play out? I think the reason I was thinking about this is it calls to mind the phrase, the tyranny of structurelessness, which gets at the idea that if the process for doing something isn't well-defined, if like process or structure in an organization isn't well-defined, or it isn't explicit, I should say. It might be well-defined, but it's not explicit. Then only the insiders who are aware of the structure and the process are able to engage with it. And the people who aren't aware live in a state of either maybe confusion, maybe paranoia, uh, because they don't understand what the process is for making change and who has the power to make change. So I think that was the idea that came to mind. And my, my assumption, because my assumption is that in a place like Lockheed and even a place like Skunk Works, the hierarchy is very well defined. And people like Kelly Johnson were empowered to, to make decisions. And I, what I like to assume is that Kelly Johnson and people in positions like Kelly Johnson's got feedback from their engineers and the people actually performing their work on what kind of process was needed and what process was necessary and then championed that approach. I think um, it's also, there's this, in, there's this idea of like, we have little process or no process because we want our engineers to work in the way that they think works best, which is actually saying that like, we have all inherently decided on this process that yeah. like, I hate this word, but for lack of a better word, the culture that we've hired for or created <laughs> like agrees with. And we just reject anybody who doesn't like that process, but we don't know what it is because it's sort of this implicit, implicit thing. And there, there's, there's reasons that works and there's problems with it. But I think that it, that ultimately is when some people talk about low process or no process, that's ultimately kind of what they're saying. Yeah. It's interesting because as you were talking about like structurelessness, I started thinking about ThoughtBot itself, right? Like, there isn't a ton of structure. There's more structure probably than there was when I started now that we have like development directors and then some C-level people um, and design directors and mobile directors. But it is, it is mostly structurelessness. And one of the things Chad has harped on 
repeatedly has basically been like he he's concerned that now the company has gotten bigger that like a lot of the people who have who have more recently joined don't recognize that like the reason the reason we do things x way isn't unchangeable and set in stone basically and to them thoughtbot doing the doing something one way has always been like that that's not new that's the way it was when i joined right but then to people like chad chad's like well no that's crazy like we we just started doing this a year ago and you just joined right. you you think it's always been that way because you joined nine months ago and it's like right. it's an interesting problem to try and combat because a lot of people say they really enjoy the structuralistness of it all but when you're first getting up you don't you don't understand like how do i how like okay you say there's no structure to the organization or there's very you know the minimal amount of structure possible but how do you <laughs> how do i then enact a change right how do i get everybody on board or yeah i think one thing that thoughtbot is really good at that i really appreciate is documentation uh everything is documented and i think for me personally we have we have this document on github called the handbook that details almost everything i mean i that i could think of you know has human resources stuff it has um what else like how to uh organize meetups and events that we often do it has some resources with respect to the thoughtbot sales process and um yeah it has it has basically everything that Every piece of information that we think is somewhat internal as far as how the company runs, right? We try to be yeah. as public as we can. And there's probably some things in there that could definitely just be public. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, they aren't. But it's like a private repo where we talk about everything from like how to conduct a performance review to how often you get a new laptop and like <laughs> basically everything. And the beauty of it being that like, or the beauty of it for some, I guess, being that it's just pull requests to change mm-hmm. that, right? Um, yeah. And then there's a conversation around it. Yeah, and I think that's a great process. I I think it's fantastic, and I personally find that it having that explicitly documented somewhere goes a really long way toward illuminating the structure of the organization. I'm still hung up on the. I just remember when when I was there, like after about a year, I don't remember what it was. There was some policy that I was really mad about and I thought was the worst thing ever, but I just <laughs> assumed it's always been that way. And when I actually brought finally brought it up, I had found out it was introduced like two weeks before I started. <laughs> <laughs> it was like because of a thing Joe said once uh, in, in Campfire. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the story of a lot of things. Like you can't, like, so Chad was making the point, and this is a little bit inside thought pop, but just kept making the point of like, if you think something should be a different way, propose it talk about it raise Mm -hmm. the issue open a pull request whatever the case may be because the chances are either we haven't thought about it or like it actually just started being that way just before you know before you started or something like that yeah Um, i I just think it's it's been like what it's been about a year now since i left and it's just funny that that's still a thing i mean of course it's always gonna be a thing thing, but back to the talk for a second like one of the things it's fine uh it was an interesting side note one of the things that was interesting to me is like everybody I talked to at the conference itself, like the people that I was meeting, I was like, oh, I really enjoyed Nick, Nick's talk about the Skunk Works program. And, and most everybody was like, yeah, yeah, that was really great. Wasn't that great? Like, And then I was in the airport talking to somebody and they were a junior developer at a company. And you know they told me a couple of the talks that they really liked. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And they were like, what did, what did you like? And so I was, I was like, I really liked Nick's talk. It was really great. And they were like, which one was that? I was like, oh, about the airplanes. 
And they were like, oh, I couldn't follow that. It's not about code, you know, so I'm not into it. And I was just like, so, oh, mm -hmm, yeah. Like, I wasn't going to, like, explain it, but I was like, oh, no, it was. Like, <laughs> it was about code and, like, how so much of our job is actually not about writing the code in the machine. Right. It's about, like, coming to an agreement about how we're going to write the code in the machine or what code we're going to write into the machine, right? To do what? Right, to do what? Um, but uh, and that's also, that, that's so weird. That's because that's the thing I liked about it is that it didn't try so hard to be about code. It was also mm -hmm. happy just being a good talk about planes. Right, <laughs> right. And their point was more like, you know, my company sends me here. And it's one of those things. Like, I need to come back and be like, this is, you know, I learned how to... Um, I don't know. I learned about rack middleware. Or I learned about how sprockets works. Um, and here's how it's going to help me in my job. Yeah, but like by that same logic, they shouldn't go to the the drink ups. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like you can afford to enjoy yourself for right. a non-technical yep. keynote. For yep. an hour. And ultimately, like, and you can reflect on that and be like, actually, this is actually a really valuable thing. It's not a technical yeah. piece that I could have gotten from a blog post. It's a and not, that's sorry, not to say that like technical talks are things you can get from blog posts. They're not. They're fantastic technical talks as well. But, you know, it's something that is kind of more like you kind of let it marinate for a little bit and it, you're like, oh, OK, I see. Ooh, that's interesting. It makes you kind of see things from a different perspective. Anyway. Yeah. I, I think it was a great talk, Bill. A lot of people can get a lot out of. Yeah. So if you got it this far and you haven't listened, you haven't listened to the talk yet, then go look through the show notes and find the talk and go watch it. And Nick, <laughs> if you're listening, you should keep you should do more talks. More more talks about planes. He actually has and another pilots. he has another talk about plane about a it is about a pilot and a plane, <laughs> about a plane crash. Which oh, I have yes. I have queued up to watch, but is supposedly very, very good as well. So I don't know. I'm 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 doing my first my first actual keynote in a few months, and that talk definitely gave me a lot of ideas about what I'm going to do. Nice. Where Where are you doing it? Um, I'm doing two actually. I'm um, almost back to back. One at Rails Club in Moscow, and then another one at a new conference that's going to be in Poland. Awesome. Awesome. Congratulations. Exciting. We'll link to them in the show notes, or the one I, I don't know if the one in Poland actually has like a website yet, but. Anybody have anything else about the talk, or anything else? Planes are cool. <laughs> I yeah, did enjoy planes story time. Are pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> story time is good. If nothing else, it's gonna it's a good story to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm/slash seventy one. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed. 